You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 23. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Our now, our Father, as we come and sit under your word for us, we desire to be made into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. So, um, God the Son, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak now through your word, and that God the Spirit, that you would uh, cause us to see the Son clearly, that you would cause us to hear your word clearly, that we pray that you would, O triune God, draw, convict, give life, and fill us, your people, we pray. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all, and as I've said the last couple weeks, a few of you for the first time in many, many, many months. So it's good to see you all in this building again. Uh, Well, my name is Nathan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to. Uh, And here, like aside from The Mandalorian and WandaVision, in our house, the Sherman house, we haven't, we don't watch a lot of new TV. Uh, But the Junix, the Junix have got, got us re-watching old episodes of The Amazing Race. Uh, I, before, we, before they had turned, this, turned us on to this, I had never seen an episode of The Amazing Race, even though it has been on TV forever. Uh, and 
as you know, or likely know, it's a reality TV competition. So much of it is formulaic and contrived. It's often silly, and it can minimize uh, deep and nuanced world cultures, and yet we love it <laughs> in our house. Uh, but like, once an episode, though, um, as teams of loud and obnoxious Americans are running and screaming their way through like quiet and subdued world cultures, uh, once an episode, I will like put my head or my head in my hands and just be like. Ugh, like Americans, why, why Americans? Uh, but Americans, it's not just because they're on TV. It's not like they're just being loud and obnoxious because they know that the uh, TV cameras are rolling this week. I was remembering uh, a student exchange program that I was on in high school. Uh, several of us went and lived with families in former East Berlin uh, for three weeks. And one weekend we went down to the city of Potsdam, the city where the allies like settled uh, World War II after that war. It's a classically beautiful old German city square. There's like bricks on the ground, beautiful buildings all around it. And we took an American football. Uh, and there's like quiet Germans walking around trying, enjoy, trying to enjoy their beautiful old city. And then there's like three 17-year-old boys over there like, green, idiot, idiot. And then like running fly patterns like through the middle of the square. And I look back and remember those days in just like horror of like so loud, so obnoxious. But here's the thing. We all know of Newton's third law, right? Uh, that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, the same is not only just true for physics, but with words, with actions, with even societies. The louder and clearer that something or someone is, the stronger the response and the reaction. Some folks in the word, world see Americans and think like, yeah, man, rock and roll. Americans just do what they want. And isn't it great? What a, what a model for the rest of the world to follow. But still others think, ugh, Americans, like you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. And they grow in deep hatred for America. Few people in the world are indifferent to America just because Americans are so loud in their beliefs, in their worldview. Well, the gospel announcement, the proclamation that Jesus is king, that he is risen, that he is the God-man, that he has conquered sin and death, that he demands the world's loyalty, and get this, that he loves you, this is a very loud and clear announcement. And the clearer that announcement becomes, the stronger and clearer the reaction and the response of its hearers ought to be in either hearing and believing or hearing and rejecting. And so tonight we're going to see just that varied but clear responses to the gospel as Paul and Barnabas continue on in their first missionary journey. So we're going to see tonight that the gospel divides, the gospel provokes, and the gospel endures. It divides, it provokes, and it endures. So first of all, uh, picking up on where we were last week, where Paul and Barnabas left Pisidian Antioch, the, the Antioch that's in uh, modern-day Turkey, in chapter 13, now they head off to the city, uh, and also a Turkish city, of Iconium. And so since we had Nina start reading in verse 8. Let me just read these first seven verses for us in Acts 14. So we read, 
Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and to Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So similarly to last week where we saw them at Antioch, they first go to the synagogue. Now the synagogue wasn't just like a religious meeting house, like a a church building or something. It was that, but it was also the cultural center for all of Jewish life in a given city. Think of like Chinatown or Little Italy in any big American city like New York City or in San Francisco or something. It is the cultural uh, hotspot of, of Jewish life surrounding the synagogue. So it just makes sense, like we talked about last week, to begin their inside out work of evangelism there. And so, just like at Pisidian Antioch, there is initially a very warm and uh, optimistic response to the gospel announcement of Jesus. There, we read that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They responded positively to Christ as king. But, just like in Antioch, in verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, Luke doesn't tell us here how they poisoned their minds, what they were saying or stirring up uh, against Paul and Barnabas. But many scholars think that Paul would either now or later write his letter of Galatians to these churches. These churches, Galatia isn't a city, but a region. And so these cities are in the, uh, the area of Galatia, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. And if that's the case then these unbelieving Jews were, if Galatians is our guide to understanding what they were teaching and poisoning with, they were trying to return to an old way or to hold on to the old way, the old way of culture and tradition and just an expectation of the normal that were way more important to them than what all of those cultures and traditions and ways of life were actually pointing toward. That is, that by the, keep, the strict keeping of the law, by maintaining circumcision and the dietary food laws, that it is by that that people would be both made right and then kept right before God. But, Paul says in Galatians 2, he says that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And immediately following that, he doesn't use poison language in Galatians 3, but he asks incredulously, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has like put a spell, poisoned your minds into thinking that it is not Christ and Christ alone? The gospel announcement of Jesus as king said it is through Christ alone that we must be saved, where we will find forgiveness of sins and forgiveness from God. It is never Jesus and something. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus righteousness by which we are saved. For if righteousness, Paul says, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It is through Christ alone. 
And so maybe these Jews think that Paul is completely and harmfully turning over the apple cart of the Jewish way of life. That he is saying that walking in grace before God is actually a bad thing. And how can that be? Why might that be? Well, perhaps they're accusing him that since humans uh, know, if humans know God by grace through faith, that perhaps Paul is now saying that we can just now live our lives in however we want without uh, any regard for obedience or holiness. But I doubt these teachers, the ones poisoning the mind of Paul's hearers, I doubt they are misunderstanding because Paul's preaching seems pretty clear. Paul is preaching as Tim Keller has helpfully summarized that I obey because I am accepted rather than I am accepted because I obey. This is the whole message of the gospel. And so perhaps, perhaps because Paul's preaching has and will be quite clear, perhaps these guys don't like that uh, the social power that the gospel is potentially stripping from them. They don't like losing out on that, that God elevates the humble and the weak, that he desires men of character, character brought about by the Spirit of God to lead his people, rather than just being a, a leader or a son of a great leader or a great-grandson of a great rabbi or something like that, or perhaps elevating the humble and the, 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 the weak who are brought about with godly character rather than merely possessing human gifts of eloquence or persuasion, that leading God's people is about building a community around the humiliating death of Christ rather than building a community merely around the, the cult of personality of any given leader. Now, I'm importing and assuming here on what they are preaching or poisoning against Paul with. We don't exactly know why they were opposed to Paul and the Christ who lived in him, but the gospel had divided the people in exactly the way that Jesus said it would. In Matthew 10, Matthew 10, a section of scripture that perhaps we don't embroider too often on a throw pillow or like calligraphy over our kitchen tables, Jesus said this, Jesus said this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is pretty shocking. But Jesus here in the context is not talking about ultimate peace. For indeed, he actually has come to bring ultimate worldwide peace. But he is saying that he has not come to just bring uh, harmony, inter, intrapersonal relationships uh, that are never in conflict with one another. In fact, in that sense, Jesus absolutely has come to bring conflict, has come to bring disagreement, has come to bring even division. Will people receive Christ as their ultimate king over and pushing down uh, the traditions, emperors, political leaders, power, economic success, pushing down the self, that the self and all that we hold dear might serve Christ as our king? Or will people 
elevate the self, elevate success. Okay with Christ being around, but as long as Christ is subservient to and serves us, ourself, and our success. The world is divided into two, those who Christ will be king or those who will be king over Christ. The clearer the message, the clearer the response. And just as Jesus would explain, you are either for me or against me, for the kingdom of heaven and its reality of flourishing peace and humility or against it. The gospel divides. And it has divided the people of Iconium so clearly that the leaders start planning to end this gospel announcement, the kingdom of Christ. When Paul and Barnabas get word that there is a plan growing to stone them, to kill them, they get out of there and they move on to the next city, to Lystra, which is where we now find our second point. Now, secondly, the gospel divides and it also provokes At Lystra, we find the events that Nena read for us a few minutes ago. Luke describes a scene that actually ought to remind us back to chapter 3 of Acts 3. There, in Acts 3, immediately following Peter's first recorded sermon, Peter encounters and then looks intently upon a man who had never walked, a man who was lame from birth. And here, Paul, just like Peter, after his first recorded sermon, looks intently at a man lame from birth, and he heals him. The man jumps up and begins walking. We've seen throughout the book of Acts that the messianic kingdom that the prophets were all looking forward to, especially the prophet Isaiah, had arrived in the coming of Christ. Last week we saw from Isaiah that a light had come to the Gentiles. And even now here, it's not explicitly clear whether this man was a Jew or a Gentile, but it sure seems like even the Gentiles, even the, the lame Gentiles are walking. God is doing the easy part. He is healing weak legs to prove that he can do the hard part, healing dead hearts. Paul is validating and showing the trustworthiness of the greater miracle, that of Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the power of sin to this town that had very little context for Israel's Messiah. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because of how the people of Lystra respond when they hear about this healing. They all come out in the streets, ready to worship Paul and Barnabas, who they are calling the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. And the irony here is just thick. They are shouting, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And of course, that is exactly the announcement that Paul and Barnabas had arrived in Lystra preaching. That God had come down to us in the likeness of men. In fact, that phrase, the likeness of men, is exactly the same phrase that Paul would use to later describe the incarnation of Jesus in Philippians 2. God had taken on human nature. Jesus, both God and man, now lives and dies for us. These folks have got it all right, and yet they have got it all wrong. Even a priest of Zeus comes out with oxen and garlands ready to make a sacrifice here to Paul and Barnabas. Maybe, maybe they're responding in thankfulness for what they had done for this lame man that they had known of their whole life. More likely, they are probably thinking that if they can keep these new visitors, these 
seemingly divine, miraculous visitors to their city, if they can keep these newcomers happy, there will be more miracles, more provision, more awesome. Keep it coming. But Paul and Barnabas are rightly distressed. Like so many other folks in the Bible who encounter blasphemy or worship of things other than God, Paul and Barnabas grab the crowd's attention and they show them their anger by ripping their clothes in front of them and seemingly shouting in anger, saying, why are you doing these things? They say, we are not gods. We certainly are not your false gods who have no real authority. Rather, middle of verse 15, they say that they've come to Lystra with good news. They come with a gospel that they should, that the people of Lystra should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul and Barnabas are not gods and Zeus and Hermes are not worthy of worship or sacrifice. They are vain or empty gods. And so, Arguing very similarly to the way that Paul does in Romans 1, Paul tells the crowd in verse 16 that in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He tells the people, just look look around. Look at the world around you. The glory and the goodness and the provision of God should be all that you need to understand that both God exists and that he is good. This kind of general revelation knowledge of God isn't enough to know and experience real and deep communion with God, but for millennia, for hundreds and thousands of years, God had allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Or as Paul says in Romans 3, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That is, what Paul is saying there, is that God didn't just utterly destroy worldwide wickedness like he had in the time of Noah. God was patient with the nations as they continued on in their idolatry, in their false worship, and in their wickedness. But... Now that Jesus had been crowned king in his death and in his resurrection, the time of reckoning had come. There is an urgent need now for the people of Lystra, for people outside of the ethnic nation of Israel, for repentance, for turning from vain and empty gods, and then to turn from them to faith in the living God. This is bad news. The time of God passing over former sins, the the time of God being patient in wickedness is now come to an end, for in the coming of Christ, there is bad news of God's judgment of sin, and yet the good news is even better. Because the best part of all of this is that God is a welcoming God of abundant grace. These folks have come trying to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas in order to secure blessing. People would sacrifice and worship to Greek gods and many other ancient gods to cause the rain, to cause the harvest, to cause food and gladness. But Paul says that the living God had been giving them all of these things without their sacrifices. You cannot compel or coerce him. Instead, the living God has made sacrifice for you. 
pouring out blessing despite any good that you have done and in spite of all of the bad you have done. He is good and he is kind and he has given you rain and harvest and food. God and his saving gospel cannot be manipulated. And while we don't come these days with oxen and garlands, how often are we just as easily confused? We may not believe an explicit false gospel of health and wealth, but I think many of us have a more subtle belief in something very similar. That if we pursue Christ with our whole heart and strength and mind, if we seek to know him through his word, if we seek to experience him through prayer, if we are committed to our church and we are often sharing his gospel, then things should go pretty well. I should get the kind of spouse or family I deserve for putting in the years of hard work. I should not expect to experience deep loss or hurt or pain, especially when the wider American life around me is not experiencing those things seemingly. Even those who are not Christians The economy, even during a pandemic, is doing fairly well. My friends are seemingly happy and healthy. But again, we are often most disappointed when God does not give us the things that he never promised. Our God is not manipulated. He is not a spiritual vending machine of the awesome. In fact, as we'll see later, if he is going to give anything to his people from his loving vending machine of goodness, it's actually suffering. More on that in a minute. Now, even though there wasn't the same kind of response in Lystra as there was in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, the Jews from those two cities now show up here in Lystra. Likely these Judaizers from the book of Galatians who are trying to hold on to the old ways and cut off the transformative and final announcement of Jesus as king, they have traveled over 100 miles to get here to Lystra. Like, if you think it's bad that like a social media cancel mob would follow you, making sure that uh, this is like your worst nightmare or something, making sure that Uh, to broadcast all of the ill things that you have done in their eyes, Paul must look out on these same agitators that he probably faces, that he recognizes that were causing division and uh, poisoning minds and even beginning to pick up rocks in Iconium. And he must look at them walking into town thinking, you gotta be kidding me. But understanding the nature of his preaching about Jesus, And then, perhaps even reflecting back on his own life, that he was doing the exact same thing, trying to track down Christians all over. He actually probably wasn't that surprised when he saw them walking into town. And so for the first recorded time in Acts, Paul then experiences the same kind of physical opposition that he had been leading against Stephen and against the Jerusalem church. Verse 19 They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. 
maybe as rocks are hitting him in the face. He is both asking for forgiveness for those who are doing the throwing. Maybe he is also asking for forgiveness for leading in this kind of act against Stephen. Maybe he's remembering or reflecting on the words of Jesus that he might have heard from the other apostles when Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So far in the book of Acts, we have seen Jesus's story repeated in the lives of his people because of their union with Jesus his story becomes their story. But mostly, we have seen that story repeated in the really great and awesome stuff. They repeat his preaching, his teaching, his healing ministry. But here, his people take on his suffering. Suffering so much so that everyone thinks that Paul is dead. This had to be really bad. They dragged what they thought was a corpse outside of the city to just be left to the elements. So we saw the gospel divide one city, and now it is provoking both a parade of false worship, but then an even heightened level of anger and even murder. The clearer the gospel announcement, the clearer the response. In these cities who are first hearing that Jesus is king, it really doesn't look like there's much of a category for marginal belief for lukewarm response, for, huh, you know, I bet that's probably good for my neighbor. He ought to hear that. Uh, but you know what? It's not doesn't really do much for me. I guess it's good for some people. Sure, I'll call myself a Christian, maybe even respond to Paul's preaching without counting the costs of what that means to follow him. That a clear understanding of following Jesus might mean the end of your social standing, might mean the end of your career, might mean the end of your life for these first hearers. But as suffering and death had been the gateway to glory for Jesus, his people can also expect to carry their own crosses, following him into the victory that he has won on their behalf through suffering. In the Christian worldview, suffering is actually part of God's good purposes for his people. It is part of his good purposes to peel our fingers away from the things that we hold onto so tightly in this life and in this age that we might be reattached and be growing in hope toward an age to come. The Christian worldview is that suffering is not an obstacle toward the real life that God really wants for his people, but the means through which God gives us the real life that he wants for his people. The real life of deep contentment, of deep faith and love for him, rather than merely just hope in stuff, in fleeting happiness, but enduring hope, enduring faith, enduring love, and enduring life. And in fact, that's exactly what we see through the end of chapter 14 now. So thirdly, 
The gospel divides and it provokes, but it most certainly endures. We're not exactly sure if Luke is implying that Paul was dead in verse 20 when the disciples gathered around him and he rose up, if he had been resurrected from the dead, or if he had just been very unconscious and he had finally come to. But either way, Paul now has his own Peter coming out of the tomb uh, moment that Peter experienced in the, the resurrection of him coming out of the prison cell in chapter 12. But Paul, now back to life, he and Barnabas move on to Derby, about 60 miles away from Lystra. We can only imagine the level of physical pain an injury that Paul must have been recovering from on either a 60-mile walk after he had either been just dead or unconscious, or a really bumpy cart ride or something. But he gets to Derby, and what's the first thing he does? As soon as he arrives, he begins preaching, perhaps with black eyes and broken ribs and split lips. Luke tells us in Derby. There, Paul and Barnabas made many disciples. We don't know how long they had stayed, but they were there to fulfill the Great Commission. To go unto all nations and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that Jesus had, commandment, had commanded. You don't do that after like a one-off 45-minute sermon. You likely don't do that after just a couple of days with these people. We can assume that Paul and Barnabas stayed in Derby for a good while so that these new Christians might move from merely being converts to Christ to now becoming disciples of Jesus, of knowing what it meant to live their whole lives and following Jesus in what he meant for their whole lives. And then, in the most surprising phrase, perhaps in the whole book of Acts, but maybe not if you know Paul and the power of the gospel, they leave Derby, and in the end of verse 21, they returned to Lystra. They returned to Iconium and to Antioch. Lystra, where Paul had been left for dead after stoning, and Iconium, where they had just gotten out of in the nick of time before they were stoned, and in Antioch, where they had been driven out of town by the crowds. I got a great idea. Let's head back there. Like, if you and I have a bad experience at a restaurant, if the food wasn't perfect or the server didn't smile enough, we go home and leave a one-star review and we never go back to that restaurant again. Can you imagine returning to a city which wanted you dead, did all that they could to make sure that you were dead, and think, we have to go back? But here's the thing for Paul and Barnabas. They knew that in these towns, there were people who had responded to the gospel. Some who had not yet, but some who had responded to the gospel, who had come to Christ in repentance and faith, but before they could disciple them into what it looked like to follow Jesus with their whole lives, they had been driven out of town. We have to go back. Which is exactly what they did. Verse 22, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It was undoubtedly clear to these new believers that the way of Jesus was not a way of comfort. 
And they were here to help these new believers count the cost, to help them determine, is it worth it to follow Jesus? With bruises and scars telling them perhaps something like Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, that for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Whatever discomfort you might encounter, it's okay. It is preparatory. It is preparing you for glory, but it is not only preparatory. Luke tells us here in verse 22 that it is necessary that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you think that we would fill in the blank of verse 22? How do you think we would, oh, just over coffee with each other, or perhaps just subconsciously in our own thoughts, that through many blank, we must enter the kingdom of God? Through many church services, or through many quiet times, or through much prayer, we must enter the kingdom of God through many blessings of God, through many mountaintop experiences of triumphant spiritual emotion, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, through many sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now we ought to be so thankful for the freedom and the liberty that we enjoy here in America as Christians, that reality ought to cause us to be even more prayerful for courage, for endurance, for our brothers and sisters who are being deeply persecuted for their faith in Christ all over the world. We should not pray for greater persecution. We should not pray for greater suffering. We should not pray for physical or emotional suffering. We ought to continue to make efforts to protect religious liberty in this land for people of all faiths. But the world is changing before our eyes. I'm actually not one to believe that it is like a foregone inevitability that all Orthodox Christianity will be labeled as hate speech and will be driven underground. While things are certainly clarifying these days, while certainly things are chilling, uh, if you want to talk about equal and opposite reaction, uh, as many over the past couple of decades have more vigorously and passionately tried to marginalize and ostracize religion, religious liberty is actually far stronger, is actually far more robust, and is actually far more protected by the courts than it was in the early 90s. Uh, I can point you to some reading here and toward, uh, toward the, like, the overwhelming majority of actual jurisprudence that's happening in our country. We can be thankful for that, but here's what has changed. In decades past, it was socially advantageous for you to be a Christian. Like, you want to run for political office? Well, where are you a member of a church? Otherwise, how morally trustworthy can you be if you're not part of a church? What kind of a good American citizen could you possibly be? Now, it is increasingly socially disadvantageous to be a Christian. You're running for political office, but you're a member of that church? How morally trustworthy can you actually be? The government may or may not come to a point where it directly causes the suffering, though it certainly may, but it would do us a lot of good to begin thinking 
through this as a way of counting the cost of what it means to follow Christ. As you're falling asleep tonight, just consider in some hypothetical reality, would I be willing to lose my job for following Christ? Would I be willing to lose my paycheck, my house, if it meant to continue to follow Jesus? Would I continue to follow Jesus if my entire social reputation had to die? Would I actually, like so many of our brothers and sisters right now in the world and throughout history, be willing to go to prison, to be willing to be beaten, to be willing to die for the sake of Christ? Because Christ is worthy of my life and my death. And if I can get there in my mind of following him, no matter the worst kind of suffering, then the lesser but still just as real suffering becomes more bearable, becomes more manageable, becomes more of my growing and deepening faith in God as he brings about these things for my good. Not just the suffering brought about intentionally by others, but what about the kind of suffering that has or will inevitably come for all of us in God's good providence. Is Jesus worth it in sickness, in loss, in pain, in doubt, in anxiety? Is the life to come more meaningful and ultimate than this current momentary affliction? What about even the lighter, though no less real kinds of suffering felt by putting our flesh to death and by faith pursuing selflessness for the good of others and by faith with our bodies and with our sexuality and with our possessions and even our life goals and dreams to use all of those to not pursue self-expression but self-denial by pursuing greater joy and a greater glory in Christ through suffering and through death. Real, felt, emotional suffering and death. I think we just may have to link you to Tim Keller's incredible reflection that was published this morning in The Atlantic uh, about, I'm, I'm astounded that a publication like The Atlantic would publish a long column in a long piece that Tim Keller posted uh, of, in the face of his very serious pancreatic cancer. Tim Keller writes that while he has never suffered more, in this moment in time, staring death in the face, he has never experienced more joy. I feel like this entire post, you just, you just need to read it. The whole thing is quotable. The whole thing is tweetable. But just listen to this. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. The more he is trying to make sure that he avoids suffering at all costs, the more that he embraces it and the good and wise and providential God behind the suffering, the more he has actually been able to enjoy this life. He has never been more joyful than he ever has in his life with terminal pancreatic cancer. What joy. We must count the cost. To count the cost and to know God deeply in the light, now 
Perhaps you are not experiencing suffering right now, but to press in and to know him deeply now in the light so that we do not forget or forsake him in the darkness. Which is what Paul and Barnabas are doing in these three cities as they are making disciples, as they are strengthening their faith and urging them to continue on. And what did they do in these cities? They, they didn't give them just a few Bible studies. They didn't just give them a few spiritual platitudes that they might remember them by. Here's what they did in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They planted and they left healthy churches. Not merely to inform people's brains, to put information in their brains, but to form people's brains and their hearts and their minds and their expectations and their hopes and their desires. They left elders, they left pastors, little shepherds who they themselves as sheep would lead the other sheep behind the great shepherd. And it is for these people, for these churches, and for every local church that Jesus has bled and died. For the people making up these churches, but certainly in all of our churches as well, that God has instituted in his wisdom the local church, the structure of the local church for evangelism, for discipleship, for accountability, for ongoing mission work, for our very life and godliness. This is what Jesus has left us with in his wisdom. And it is through the church that we are to to live and to grow. And then, just as that church in Antioch, the first Antioch, which sent out Paul and Barnabas on their, this first missionary journey, uh, just as that city had sent them out, now finally at the end of this chapter, Paul and Barnabas come back. They have fulfilled their mission. In verse 26, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained and they remain no little time with the disciples. They stayed there for a long time. You have to wonder whether or not Paul and Barnabas maybe even shared the bad stuff that they encountered in this journey. How Paul almost maybe did die. How he's still experiencing the pain of the broken ribs. But who cares? For they had fulfilled the work that the church at Antioch had sent them to do. God did it. He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Aslan was on the move. The worldwide winter was ending and the thaw had begun. Jesus has risen. He is king. This news demands a response of following or rejecting him, of proclaiming and not keeping silent about his goodness. So let's keep pressing. Let's keep following him together. Join us. Join him. Follow him if you haven't. The adventure is ahead. It is a costly adventure. But further up and further in, further down as we dig more deeply to build our lives and our church on a foundation of rock that will not be washed away in times of suffering 
in times of hardship, in times of loss. He is worth it, and he is with us until the end of the age. Let's thank him that he is. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that we are often faithless, though you are faithful to us, that we are often, uh, when looking suffering, when looking difficulty, when looking loss in the face, we often are not reminded of you, of your providential and loving hand that comes behind it, that you seek to grow us and form us and shape us and mold us more and more into the image of your son Jesus, who himself experienced suffering, but for the glory, for the joy set before him, he went willingly to the cross, that through death and through suffering he might emerge on the other side in victory, emerge on the other side as the conqueror and victor of sin and death. Lord, help us to identify more and more in his sufferings that we might know him in the power of the resurrection. Help us, we pray. Give us boldness. Give us uh, clarity in our speech as we proclaim this gospel to our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and our family. We pray that our words might be clear, that might elicit clear responses to the Lord Jesus. We pray for repentance. We pray for faith, for your glory, and for our own joy, and for the good of this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.